I want to begin to, by apologizing to those online. We've had issues again with our live streaming. We have worked with our online provider the last couple of weeks, and they assured us that things were taken care of, but we'll start working with them again this week. Uh, it has been a strange week, obviously. You don't have the full band up here. Uh, Matthew did a great job leading us this morning with a small group, uh, even though they weren't able to have rehearsal. I even noticed, I don't get to see the whole congregation, but I did get to see Carrie Monk doing a little Baptist dancing up here. She had that knee going through most of those songs. So, uh, Matthew, I appreciate uh, your leadership and as we worship. I have gotten a little weary of all of the plagues that we have faced. Uh, by my count, we have at least finished the first three plagues. We've, we are, or at least we're, we're working through COVID. Uh, last summer, we had our cities burn for a couple months, and then uh, now we face Snowvid 2021. Uh, I, I did ask the question, though. It seems like 2020 is kind of an introductory chapter to the decade, and now we're getting into the chapter one, so I wonder what the rest of the decade is going to be like. Y'all have any idea? Yeah, the one thing that I know is that the Lord is going to be with us. He has been with us all the way. He's been with us through 2020 and continues to pour out his blessings upon his people. Uh, I also noted, though, uh, I'm a little concerned about my wife taking time off. Last spring break, she took a week spring break and then didn't leave the house until August. Then she took two, she had two weeks off for Christmas and she gave me COVID. <laughs> and she had a four day weekend lined up in February, stayed home for 10 days. And I'm worried because spring break's coming up next month. I don't know what's going to be next. You know, uh, this has been a strange, strange time. But what I have found, as I have found through all of my life, is that God has been faithful. He is trustworthy. We have, we have learned as a church family. We have grown as a church family. Certainly, I would love to just get back to some sense of normalcy. But in some ways, I don't want to go back to normal. I pray that God has taught us something that has drawn us closer to him, made us more like him, that as we move forward in life, we'll never be the same. We'll have a hunger and a desire for his word, for fellowship, for relationships within the church family that we never had before. And so, yes, I, I, I want to get through the struggles, but I don't necessarily want to go back to normal. So let, let's just pause and ask God to... Uh, to speak to us today through his word before we go any further. Father, I thank you for the time of worship we've had. You are the ancient of days. You're the same from the beginning to the end of time. You are trustworthy. You are powerful. You are glorious. Lord, you are more than we can even imagine. And, and you sit above all of this and all of the trials and struggles and difficulties and challenges that we face are but a drop in the bucket a moment in time and Lord you have a purpose and a plan and we can trust you so guide us teach us from your word draw us closer to you where we need to be, be brought closer break our hearts where we need to be broken or challenge us where we need to be challenged and heal us where we need to be healed let your spirit accomplish your purpose through your word today we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
you know, uh, when I was pastor in May, early on as a young minister, I had a, a deacon come to me and he said, you know, pastor, when you're framing, you're, you're putting a, a trim around a door frame or, or, or on a baseboard, once you get the nail driven in, it's time to stop driving the nail. And he told me that because he felt like I was just making the same point over and over and over. Now, I wonder if it was maybe because that point was touching on one of his nerves or if it was my preaching, because my dad also had a philosophy. My dad used to say that if something doesn't fit, if a tart part doesn't fit, just get a bigger hammer and drive it home. So some of us need that, that gentle touch of, 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 a, of a small hammer. Uh, some of us need the sledgehammer brought to us. Now, I bring that as an introduction because we're going to be looking at John chapter 2. 10, beginning in verse 22. And John, in his narration of the event, of the story there, makes sure that we understand where Jesus was. And this is important for us to understand the context of today's passage. Jesus came to the temple in Jerusalem at the festival of dedication. Now, if you Try to open your Bible and you go look back in the Old Testament where all those festivals are laid out in the Mosaic Law. You won't find the Festival of Dedication. The Festival of Dedication was a festival that was relatively new in Jewish worship at the time of Jesus. It was, it's also referred to as the Festival of Lights. And what it celebrated was a, a time in Jewish history where they had had a great deliverer that came to their rescue. And that deliverer's name was Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus in Hebrew means the hammer. This was Judas the hammer. He was the son of the high priest at the time. And in 167 B.C., so about 167 years before Jesus was born, uh, the Syrian king, Antipas, came to Jerusalem and, and defeated Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. His desire was not only to do damage to the Jewish people and, and, and to their government, but it was to do damage to their faith. And so he sacrificed swine on the temple altar in the Holy of Holies. He forced the Jewish people to worship idols uh, during that time for a short period of time until Judas the hammer rose up and brought a revolt against uh, Syria and against the Syrian king and drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem, reestablished worship there in the Jewish temple. And, and because of that, they established this festival. Uh, and the festival was, was focused around lights, and it became known as that festival of dedication. It's also known as the festival of lights because God had given them a new opportunity to uh, worship and to, to, to establish their faith. And uh, that in modern day time, some of you may know, you may have already picked up on this, that festival is, is referred to as Hanukkah. And so in modern Judaism. So that is the festival that we're talking about. Well, that's important because Judas Maccabeus was seen as a deliverer for the people. Uh, he was seen as a great savior who was able to restore them, uh, restore the temple and to restore their worship and to drive out the enemy. It brought light back into their, uh, into their lives. God shone around them, uh, one of the writers of history says. And so it was a time of, of great great celebration. And Jesus has just finished, if you'll remember, in John chapter 9, had just given sight 
to the man who was born blind and referred to himself as the light of the world. And so he comes in the very next lesson. He comes here in John chapter 10 at the, at the festival of lights to communicate the fact that he is now the light of the world and he is the one who is truly the deliverer. Yes, the hammer, Judas Maccabeus, delivered you from, from the, the, the hand and the, and, and the oppression of the Syrian government. But Jesus has come to be the great Savior of the world. The Jews even equated uh, at that time, and not so much now, but, but they had put this deliverance uh, on the, almost the same level as they did the deliverance from Egypt, that they had uh, they'd come out of Egypt. And of course, Joshua, who Joshua, the, his name means Savior, Yahweh saves. It's where Jesus' name comes from. It's the, the Hebrew root of the Greek name, Iesus, and the, we, we refer to as Jesus. And so, so they're looking back to the great deliverers of their time, and Jesus steps on the scene to let them know that he is the one true deliverer. And he has communicated that message in many ways already, and yet they are still confused. And so we're going to see it here in John chapter 10, verses 22 and following. The scripture says, then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. Jews surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. I love this because Jesus has already told them plainly many times. And he says, I did tell you and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. I, gave the, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews pick up rocks to stone him. Jesus replied, I've shown you my many good works from the Father, for which, it, which of these works are you stoning me? Where's aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. I'll pause here for just a minute. What's, what's curious to me here is they outright tell him, we're not stoning you for what you do, we're stoning you for what you say. How many people in our culture today lose their jobs, lose their place in society because of a slip of the tongue? Or, or even a word that they intended that the rest of society doesn't like being used. Or a thought. These, these guys were, were, they're not the first, but, but they're a pretty good picture of a cancel culture. They didn't like what Jesus said, so they're going to stone him. He's healing people. He's giving sight to the blind. He's resurrecting people. He's, being, he's a good teacher. They all recognize that. It's not for what you do. It's because of something you said that we don't like. And we're going to kill you. Wow. Boy, that history just repeats itself over and over again, doesn't it? We aren't stoning you for, for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law, I said you were gods? If he called those to whom the word of God came gods 
and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you're blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Then they were trying to again to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. He, so he departed, he crossed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier and remained there. Many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Now, it's a curious story, and the, the weight of the, the, the teaching that I want to focus in on is the first half of this passage, really on what Jesus had to say, his words. But we're going to begin with the issue that the Jews were facing, because here you had, in particular, Jewish leadership who surrounded him. You see that in verse 24, the Jews surrounded him. It, it's almost a... a, a a reminder, John probably has in mind one of the Messianic Psalms that says, my enemy surrounded me. And so here Jesus comes into uh, the temple, to the outer uh, part, portion of the temple with uh, the, the court of the Gentiles and probably uh, partly to get in out of the wind. It was winter. And uh, so as he comes into the temple, and the, the Jews just literally surrounded him. And, and what the narrator, John, gives us here is kind of a, a, a threatening way. And they begin to ask him threatening questions. They weren't asking truly because they wanted to know something because he had already told them over and over and over. The same group of leadership he had told at, at the end of John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to stone him in, then. They knew who he claimed to be. But look at the questions they ask. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. He's already told them over and over and over again that he was the Messiah. But they didn't want to hear it. See, here, there's a truism here that is true of them that's also true of us. We hear oftentimes only what we want to hear. Now, I don't know if any of the rest of you husbands have been accused of this. But I've been accused at times of having selective hearing. Now, the truth is that th 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 that's just not the reality. I, I needed hearing aids. And now that I have hearing aids, I hear every word that my wife speaks. And I obey her every wish, right? <laughs> we say that jokingly. But Jesus says, look, I told you and you didn't believe. Oftentimes, our problem is not that we weren't taught clearly or it wasn't spoken clearly or that we didn't hear rightly. It was that our hearts were in the wrong place. Sometimes we just don't want to hear what we've been told. We don't want to hear the truth. I saw a friend post on Facebook from a sermon he heard earlier this morning. I thought, man, how perfect. It came from Tony Evans. And essentially, he, he said something like this. He, he said, it's not that the truth doesn't set us free. The truth sets us free. It's that we don't like to hear the truth. Our version of truth is not going to set us free. The truth will set us free. But we've got to be willing to hear the truth and far too often, we don't want to hear the truth. 
growing up, maybe even after you grew up, you're young, you're, you get into your young adult years, and, and you're about to make a decision that you know that your dad would think you're an idiot. Are you going to tell your dad about it? No. I'm not going to ask his opinion because I don't want to hear his opinion. He's going to tell me what I don't want to hear, right? Just this week, Susan and I have been working on a little project the last couple weeks. We might, over the next month or so, uh, purchase or upgrade my truck, trade my truck in and, and, and buy another one, either a, a, a little bit newer one or a new one. And uh, one of the reasons for that we've talked about is I graduate. It's kind of my, my incentive and gift for, for finishing up this doctoral program. And Susan's, as she's really wanted me to do it even more than I have. I, I like my truck, but man, those new ones do have some cool things on them. You know? So anyway, Bob, one of the things that you have to do is I, I've got to trade in my truck. So some of you have been through this process. You, you need to know what your trade-in's worth, but you really don't want to know. So if you do it online, you put the year in there, and you put the make and the model, and you put the stuff on, and then they start asking questions. Is it in good? Is it in fair, good, great, or excellent shape? Well, you know, certainly, you know, I, I, I don't really want to know the truth. And so I want to fudge a little bit on there, but I also recognize that if I don't, if I'm not completely honest with all of the scratches and all of the issues, then when I take it to the dealership, they're going to tell me the truth, aren't they? Whether I want to know it or not, they're going to tell me the truth. Oftentimes, we just don't want to hear it. And so we, like these Jewish leaders, listen to this. The Lord put this on my heart. Sometimes we often refuse to hear what we don't want to be true. Sometimes we refuse to hear what we don't want to be true. It's true. We know it's true. We just don't want to believe it. One of the most difficult and, and, and challenging or tear-filled examples of that, I've seen this flesh out several times as a pastor and as a chaplain. It's what I'm called on to go knock on someone's door and let them know that a loved one has passed away. There's been several times where when they saw the chaplain's shirt or they saw it was their pastor and they knew that someone had been sick in the hospital or somebody had been in a bad accident, as soon as they saw my face, they said, no, no, it can't be, it can't be. You've probably had that experience in ministry, Kirby. Because though we know something is probably the truth, Oftentimes, we just don't want to hear it. And see, we're the same way about our sin, too, aren't we? We know that there's things that God says are sin. We know that there's things that, that are destructive to our soul, destructive to our spirit. We know there's things that are destructive to our families, but we don't want to hear it. We'd rather rationalize away our sin than face our sin and confess our sin and be forgiven of our sin and be healed from our sin because we don't want to face the truth. We would rather say, no, it's not sin than address the sin in our life. We'd rather try to come up with some kind of excuse or in some way talk our way out of it than to face the reality of what God's word says. So Jesus had told them time and again, I am the Messiah. I am God. The Father and I are one. He had told them time and again, and we see it in the Gospel of John. It's a theme in the Gospel of John. 
And they, they come out and they say, well, when are you going to tell us plainly? Well, part of it was just because they wanted a, a reason. They, they wanted to have their, his statement down on record so that they could use it against him. But I think the greater part of it was they just didn't want to believe. Because if Jesus was who he said he was, then their lives would have to change. If Jesus is who he says he is, then then you have to recognize that he is Lord and submit your life to him. See, you cannot get away with saying that Jesus is a good teacher or Jesus was a good person of history, but he's not God. You can't. Because if Jesus was a good teacher, and then he says, I'm God, and he's lying, he's not a good teacher. You cannot make that argument that Jesus was just a good person, or a good teacher, or a good prophet, because he so clearly claims to be God that unless you recognize that he is Lord, then he is a liar. And scripture is not true. The problem is not with what we hear or what's been communicated to our ears through God's word. The problem is our hearts. They did not want to believe that Jesus was Lord. And so they refused to believe the truth even though they knew it had to be true because of what they had seen. They had just seen him as the blind man argued. Has anybody ever even heard of someone who was born blind who received his sight? No, no one's ever even heard of that. How can he not be from God? And yet they refused to see it because they didn't want to see it. Jesus came to deliver us from our sin. But until we recognize and confess our sin, we cannot be delivered. In fact, that's the next part of his teaching here. He said, listen, the works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. There's a couple things he tells us here about his sheep. First of all, he calls his sheep. The Spirit of God is calling out to you. And calling you into his fold, he calls to his sheep. I remember as a 12-year-old boy, the Spirit of God began to speak to my heart and draw me into a relationship with him. I recognized that I had sinned, that I was a sinner, and that I needed salvation. And the Spirit of God began to call to my heart. It didn't start with me. It didn't start because I was a good boy. That's for sure. You don't have to talk to very many people that knew me as a kid to know that I was a mess. My hope began when, the, when God began to call me. My hope originated with God, not inside of me. But he began to call me, and God calls out to his sheep, and his sheep believe and follow him. His sheep put their faith in what he says and who he is, and they follow him. And then Jesus says, those who he calls, they believe and follow him. He gives eternal life. The flip side of this is those who are not his sheep will not respond to his call. They do not believe in him and they will not follow him. 
those who refuse to believe and those who refuse to follow will not receive eternal life. Eternal life is reserved for those whom Jesus calls. They, they hear his voice. They respond to him. And they follow him. It didn't originate with you. But we have a responsibility to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, to put our faith and our hope and our trust in him and follow him as Lord. And there's one more bit of good news here for the sheep. Jesus says, those who follow me will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand, and I'm in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, I know that, that there's, a, there, there's a variant of beliefs throughout uh, Christendom, throughout Christian denominations, even evangelical Christian denominations. That, and part of the concern with this truth here that those who are truly God's children, once they are born again, once they become a child of God, once they become a, a sheep in his fold, can never, ever, ever lose their salvation. One of the concerns with that is, and human logic is, well, if, if that's the truth, if you're once saved, always saved, if you can never lose your salvation, then what's the incentive to walking as a disciple of Christ. Why not just go out and do whatever you want to do? Well, there's lots of incentive. We don't have time to get into the, all of the arguments from Scripture about this doctrine. But one of the, the most important ones Paul addresses, he said, God didn't save you from sin so that you could go out and ruin your life. God saved you from sin so that you could walk in a relationship with him and be delivered from the destructive nature of sin. Sin will destroy you. It'll destroy you spiritually. It'll destroy your family. It'll destroy your marriage. It'll destroy your relationship with your children. It'll destroy your job. It can destroy your health. Sin will ultimately and utterly destroy you. You don't have to look very far around our culture to see the impact and the effects of sin. He did not save us from our sins so that we could wallow in sin. Those who are born again believers in Jesus Christ will turn from their sin and walk toward him. Second, and this is just as important, is there is an incentive in the fact that the, the very Son of God, who from eternity past was seated on the throne of heaven, stepped into this world to take on human flesh, to suffer and die and shed his blood that I might have eternal life. And if I truly put my faith and trust in him and truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then there's a sense of gratitude that wells up in me and I desire to follow him. I desire to give my life for him, to live my life for him just as he gave up his life for me. And so the, the bottom line is the, the, the arguments don't bear up this idea that you can just get your tickets checked to eternal life and then live however you want to. That's not the truth of Scripture, and that's not what one of Jesus' sheep looks like. If you take that approach and you say, well, I'm going to go forward. I'm going to get baptized so I can live like I want to, or I'm going to go to confession on Sunday so that I can live like I want to the rest of the week. If that's your, your modus operandi, that's how you're going about life, I'm going to suggest that you're not one of his sheep. You're not following him. You never were, never are, and so certainly you're not saved and you're not secure but if you're one of his sheep who slips 
and falls, you will not be eternally damned. Susan and I sat in an ICU waiting room with an older man who was there visiting with his, his grandchild was in ICU in Dallas Children's Medical Center way back in the day. He and his wife were godly people. You could just sense the spirit in them. That You saw the fruit in their life. They were there to watch after their kids. They were there for their grandkids. They were sharing their faith. They were, they, you just said there was a sweet spirit about them. But there was a time when we were in there alone with just, just the man and his wife and, and Susan and I, and, and we began to talk about our faith. And I, I remember sharing something about how, you know, I am so glad that, that because of what Christ has done for me, I have this assurance that, that even if Katie dies, that I'll get to see her again. And his response was, well, I hope that's true. I hope I, I, hope I get to have eternal life. And I just shook my head. My heart was broken for him. And I, I began to talk to him about that. He was an elder in his church and clearly had a relationship with the Lord, but he belonged to the church of God where he had been taught all of his life that he could lose his salvation if he slipped up and made a mistake right before he died. Well, we looked at scripture together. I know that you know, he was a lot older than me. I was a young punk. There's no way I'd ever convince him any differently. But God's word is clear. John in John chapter 5 says, I have these things I've written so that you might know that you have eternal life. You can know. If, if you have any question about that, come talk to me about it because you can know. There's no way, I don't think you can get around it. Jesus says right here very clearly, those who are my sheep are wrapped, are given to me and, and they are wrapped up in my hands. I have given them eternal life, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of his hands. Now, I, I don't have any question whatsoever that when I put my full faith and trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior, that I am eternally forever saved. And I'm so grateful for that that I want to live out my life giving him glory and honor for what he's done. It's not about anything I've done. It's about what he's done. And he deserves the honor and the glory for it. He gives eternal life to his sheep, and he provides eternal security for his sheep. You don't have to worry about it. You have to trust him. And then, then finally here, you look at verse 30. And verse 30 is a few words that, that really sets up what he expresses and explains in the rest of this passage. He says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. So Jesus once again makes the claim that I, there's no way that they can deny it. Of course, they pick up rocks and try to kill him again because of it. It's not the first time that he was clear enough they wanted to kill him, okay? I and the Father are one. I am God. I am one with Yahweh, I am one with the heavenly Father. He makes it clear here. And then they pick up rocks to throw at him, and Jesus says, why are you trying to stone me again? Which one of my good works are you trying to stone me for? Oh, it's not your good works. It's just because you said you and the Father are one. And so then Jesus uses scripture uh, to, to argue with him. But here's two main points that I want you to see out of this passage. The first one is this. Jesus' words clearly claim his deity. Hear that. His words claim he is God. This is not the first time. It's not just his words. It's what John, the author of this gospel, said about him. It's what John the Baptist said about him. You're going to see a reference to that in the last verse in this passage. It's what uh, the witnesses, other witnesses said about him. 
the words that Jesus declared claim that he is God. That's why you cannot say, well, he's just a good teacher, or he's just a prophet, or he's a man from God. Because if he was any of those things, and he wasn't fully God, he's a liar. Jesus is God. I've had visitors from what I would consider a cult who claim to be Christians many times come to my door and, and they want to talk to me about how Jesus is, he's just a God and we can be a God like he is and we can have our own planet that we can rule over and, and they'll, they'll open up to their, their version of the gospel of John and, and they'll, they'll want to study with me and it, right up until I want to sit down and open the Greek with them and look at the Greek and start asking them questions like this. So what did Jesus mean when he said before Abraham was... I am, because Jesus' words, his own words throughout the Gospel of John make it clear that he is God. It's not just his words, though. And Jesus is saying, this may be more important for you skeptics out there. My works also declare that I am God. If you don't believe what I say, look at what I'm doing, and, and tell me how any of these works could not point to the fact that I am God, that I'm from the Father. A blind man who had been blind from birth received sight. A man who had been lame from birth, laying at the sheep gate, gets up and walks. And the very next story after this, one of my favorite of all in the Gospel of John, Jesus waits until his friend Lazarus is cold dead wrapped up in mummy's claws, laid in the tomb, been dead four days until his sister says, we can't open the grave, he's going to stink. He's dead, no question, past any time of, of, of resurrection. And Jesus raises him from the dead. And what response does he get? The same response he got here. Some believed because they saw the work, they believed his words that he was God, some said he's gone too far now. Now we really got to get him. So no matter what he did and no matter what he said, those who did not want to believe, those who did not want to accept, were never going to believe his word. And they were going to die in their sin and remain forever separated from God. You and I, every one of us, fits into one of two camps. We're either one of his sheep, we're one of his children, we're one of his, or we're not. If you've heard the voice of God calling you and you have refused to believe, you refuse to believe his works, you refuse to believe his word, you refuse to believe what you see in others' lives, the expressions of God in others' lives, you refuse to believe you will forever be separated from God. You will not have eternal life. It doesn't matter how good your grandma was or how many times you went to church or how much money you gave. If you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you will forever be separated from God and you'll die in your sins. But if you come to that place in your life where you make that decision, you say, you know what? Jesus is who he says he is. I believe it. I, I want to surrender my life fully and completely over to the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus. I want to worship him and his spirit and his father. I, 
I believe that Jesus is God, and I'm going to worship him, and I'm going to follow him. Jesus says to those who believe and follow him, he will give you eternal life that can never, ever, 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 ever be taken away. Not even by your mistakes, not even by your faults, not even by the enemy, not by a government, not by Satan. Once you put your faith and trust in him and you, you are born again as a child of God, you are forever born again. You are forever his child. You may need to be disciplined at times, right? My dad had to discipline me many times because sometimes I didn't act like his child. But it didn't make me any less his child. I did not lose his DNA. If you don't believe it, look at pictures of dad when he was 53 years old. Right, Susan? My prayer is that if you've been a child of God for 53 years or 33 years, that his DNA is so imprinted on you that people can see him in you. Nevertheless, if you are born of God, you're one of his children, you're his for eternity, and you have eternal life. If you aren't sure about that, you're like the, the elder from the church of God that I met years ago. If you're even unsure, please come sit down and talk to me as your pastor. Get a hold of Kevin. If you know, if you know that, that you're not a child of God and you've been running from God or you've been avoiding him because you know it's true and you just don't want to hear it, I plead with you to submit to the truth. It will never do you any good to run from the truth and to base your life on the lies. It's better to go ahead and turn the light on, look at the truth, and make a decision based on what you know to be true. And if Jesus is God, I believe the decision's clear. Matthew, would you come and lead us? And as Matthew's coming, would you stand with me? If God is calling you to put your faith in him, to put your trust in him, maybe you, you've never followed through with baptism. You feel God calling you to become a part of this church family. Whatever decision God's calling you to, if you feel the spirit of God, you know the shepherd's calling you, you as one of his sheep. My prayer is that you would respond today. Father, let your spirit move during these moments as we close out this service. And as your spirit moves, draw us to you that we might respond in faith, in belief, to who you are, to the truth. We pray in Jesus' name.